Hello and welcome to the reading of The Business Record. This edition is from March 12th. I'm your reader, Erin. You're listening to Iris and we'll just jump right into it. On our cover page, it says Iowa's healthcare system stretched, but not broken by pandemic. And over the word stretched is a mask that is being stretched out. Um, there's no person, but there's just this mask being stretched out to be put on, and that is the cover page. Our first article is Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know, Tim Nelligen, President, Continental Western Group, and this comes from Joe Gardezes. Tim Nelligen joined Continental Western Group as its president in October 2020. Based in Urbandale, Continental Western Group is operating company of WR Berkeley Corporation, one of the largest commercial insurances insurers in the United States. Nelgen has a track record as an accomplished leader of both a large agency and say an associate in Wisconsin and the underwriting divisions for a major property and casualty insurance carrier, the Hartford. He brings 30 years of experience in underwriting, sales, operational planning, and execution to CWG with a talent for corporate strategy development and implementation. Quote, he is a dynamic leader with a strong track record of outstanding results, end quote, said W. Robert Berkeley Jr., president and CEO of W.R. Berkeley Corp. Continental Western Group offers a broad array of commercial insurance products for businesses in 13 states, from the Great Lakes to the Rockies. In November, Continental Western Group was named one of the 100 best places to work in insurance by Business Insurance Magazine. At a glance, hometown, Crete, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, education, dual bachelor of science degrees in finance and management from Northern Illinois University, DeKalb, Illinois, insurance executive development program, American Institute for CPCU, in partnership with the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, professional certifications, chartered property and casualty underwriter, family, he and his wife have three children. He is 57 years old, and activities include woodworking and home improvement projects, biking and golf. He enjoys international travel and is conversationally fluent in Italian. And now we have a question and answer segment with Tim Nilligan. What it, has it been like onboarding as president during a pandemic? It's been interesting, but it's also been an extremely good challenge that I would not have anticipated taking over leadership of a dynamic organization and having to do it in a virtual environment. However, we have found some very creative ways for me to get in touch with the organization in large groups and actually in very small groups. We've had talks with three to five employees where I can get to know the people of Continental Western on a much more personal level. I will probably get through all of our 250 employees by about the first week of February. Question, tell me a little more about Continental Western Group. Answer, it's a dynamic organization with a long history. It came together from basically three companies, Tri-State Insurance out of Minnesota, Union Insurance out of Lincoln, Nebraska, and of course, Continental Western in Des Moines. Those companies were acquired by W.R. Berkeley Corp. in the mid-1970s, and they were combined under the Continental Western brand in the mid-1980s. Question, how have things been with the company during the pandemic? Answer, I think every company has been impacted in every person in some regard with COVID. We are no exception. We did a very good job of establishing a work-at-home, fully functional operation in our teams because of the spike in COVID-19 across most of our states. It is mitigating, and we are going to be transitioning back to our work environment in a very conservative, safe manner. But we do have a vision to have our operations back in our physical locations as we can. It's been a very good story of team resilience. Question, this is your first role as a company president. How are you approaching that? Answer, it is the first title I've had as a president. 
but some of my prior experience had a similar scope of scale and responsibility. I spent 30 years in the industry with a very large national insurance company and managed essentially a big portion of the central time zone, so that was a good foundation in taking the next step in leading Continental Western Group. Also, having been the chief operating officer for the past three years with a very large agency with four locations in the state of Wisconsin gives me, quite honestly, excellent experience in running an insurance company. Question, how do you see yourself as a leader? Answer, I am very much a leader that enjoys building high-quality teams. I am very engaged with developing people as part of that process. I put a lot of time and effort into attracting and developing the best talent possible for a team and being very engaged with the team. I also like to get to know people personally. I like the term hustles, humble, and hungry in terms of engaging with people on a very candid basis and working with them. As a leader, it is very important to be a good communicator, not just internally, but certainly with clients, agents, and the general community as well. What's the outlook for growth for Continental Western? The history of Continental Western is that we make sure we're looking at growth the right way. We're coming off of 2020 as a very successful year, even though many businesses were impacted by the severe Dorejo event that hit Iowa particularly hard. We're looking at 2021 to be a continued strong performance for Continental Western. We're very optimistic. Question, what kind of civic involvement do you bring to Des Moines? Answer, we, the company, have a good history in terms of being involved with the community. My past brings quite an emphasis on giving back to the communities we're in, whether it's time, talent, or treasure, as the saying goes. We have been doing quite a bit of mentorship and volunteering. I've always enjoyed giving back everything from building Habitat Homes to being chairman of the Insurance Industry Charitable Foundation's Southeast Division, which was headquartered in Dallas when I was there. I was on the board for four years, chairman for the last two. I'm involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. That's more on a personal level. I've also done some things earlier in my career with the Special Olympics and Miracle League. Question, what hobbies do you enjoy? Answer, we are an outdoors family. We like a lot of sports and outdoor activities. Personally, I like woodworking. I did construction to put myself through school so I can be pretty handy with projects. I do like biking and golf. So yeah, we stay very active. I've done a lot of international travel and that's how I've picked up Italian as a language. Again, this article comes from Joe Gardazzi's, who is a senior staff writer at Business Record. He covers insurance and investments, health and wellness, manufacturing and logistics, HR and education, banking and finance. Our next article, Healthcare and Wellness. Exemplar Care launches a 24-7 urgent care clinic. Direct Primary Care Group now has a team of physicians, more than 500 patients, by Joe Gardaisis, a West Des Moines physician who is beginning his third year operating a direct primary care practice, has now launched a 24-hour urgent care extended care clinic as an additional service for his members, but the clinic will also provide a much-needed off-hours community resource to the public. More than 500 Central Iowa patients are currently enrolled as members of Exemplar Care, a direct primary care practice established by Dr. John Van Dervier in January 2019. The steady revenue stream from the flat fee member rates paid by his patients has made it possible for him to launch the 24-7 urgent care clinic. It's located in an expanded facility he's moved to into at 7300 Westtown Parkway, Suite 330. The urgent care clinic officially opened on February 15th. Van Der Veer determined that the need for an urgent care clinic that could remain open 24-7 existed after discussions with a number of Central Iowa business leaders. 
Other urgent care clinics in Greater Des Moines only remain open until early evening hours. Exemplar Care's H-shaped medical building has separate wings for primary care, urgent care, and extended care patients. Quote, we're hiring between seven and nine clinicians, all fairly tenured and experienced clinicians, he said. We think that having a skilled workforce is first and foremost in importance, end quote. The physicians are investors in the practice as a professional licensed limited liability company and use a management service organization to handle financial and management aspects of the business. The middle part of the H-shaped building that connects the two ends is the primary care wing, where Vanderveer has brought on a physician assistant to help handle the increase in patients. Quote, as we continue to grow, we have doctors in our urgent care clinics who would like to transition to the primary care piece, he said. It's really easy to plug in somebody on the urgent care side, so we've basically got our stable fully loaded, end quote. Leading urgent care at Exemplar Care as medical director is Dr. Katie Cooner, who previously was an emergency physician at Boone County Hospital. The key is to making the business financially sound is having the foundation of the fixed revenue stream from the established primary care members with additional fee for service revenue from the urgent care on the, the icing on the cake. Quote, so the urgent care and extended care areas are there to serve members first and foremost, end quote, Vanderveer said. Those members' fees pay for their urgent care visits, so there is no added fee paid when they use the urgent care. Non-members can also access the urgent care and extended care facilities by paying a fee for service rate. Quote, for our urgent care, we'll have a 100% transparent pricing for the visit fee, for imaging, for routine blood work, for urine samples, for drug screens. We basically found out the price points for everyone else in the community, and we are lower than them for cash pay rates. We are putting everyone on notice that prices can and should be transparent, end quote. The third wing of the building will be used for extended care, intended for patients who may need several hours of observation or an additional round of treatments before they can be safely released to go home. Patients can receive extended care for up to 23 hours, after which they would either need to be discharged or transferred to a hospital. Quote, direct pay primary care is still the core of who we are, Vanderveer said. So if you are an employer group and let's say you have 200 people and 100 of them want to enroll in this, they will have the same direct primary care benefits. The texting, the FaceTime calls using HIPAA, Complaint video conferencing, end quote. Exemplar Care's largest employer group currently is the convenience store company Quick Trip Corp. The Tulsa, Oklahoma-based company's self-funded medical plan still offers a health insurance option, quote, but they largely let me do all the primary care pieces for anyone who selects that plan as the, the direct primary care option, end quote. Although individual patients who have come through the door by word of mouth Make up the majority of his patients. Exemplar has begun attracting some small employer groups as well. More about the direct primary care model. Under the direct primary care model, which is often referred to as a, quote, cousin of concierge care, end quote, patients pay a flat fee for unlimited visits and access to the doctor and also pay the doctor directly for any medical procedures, labs, and prescriptions at prices negotiated by the physician. In contrast with most concierge care models, however, direct primary care practices and their patients don't file any claims with health insurance companies. Quote, this is trying to get health care back to where it was 40 years ago when patients paid their doctor directly, end quote, said Dr. John Van Deerveer, founder of Exemplar Care. Quote, so this isn't a new model, it's a recycled model, end quote. 
The negotiated lab procedure and drug rates that Vanderveer passes along to his patients are typically the same rates that Medicaid would pay. For instance, an MRI with contrast might have a list price of $1,900, but Vanderveer is able to pass on his negotiated rate of $348. He posts all of his rates, which he said are negotiable, on his website as well. Connect with Exemplar Care at 515-650-4370, www.exemplar.care, 7300 West Town Parkway, Suite 330, West Des Moines, Iowa, 50266. Moving on to the cover story, Iowa's healthcare system stretched but not broken by pandemic. The genies out of the bottle for innovating changes in care, leaders say, by Joe Gardizovs. The need to rapidly respond to the pandemic crisis gave Iowa healthcare providers unprecedented permission to do things differently over the past year and will greatly influence decisions about changes to the health system in the future, says Dr. Tom Evans, president and CEO of the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative. Quote, we accepted that we had to do some things differently, end quote, Evans said. Quote, and I think my lesson is that I'm actually excited about it. I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think we as a healthcare community now have permission to actually innovate and figure out how we construct can, how we construct better care that's more efficient and more cost effective for our state, end quote. Evans, who collaborative has challenged providers to examine and improve health outcomes in Iowa for nearly two decades, was among four healthcare leaders who took the virtual stage on February 18th for the Business Records Initial Power Breakfast of 2021. The focus of the virtual forum centered on the past year's distributions to the state's healthcare system and what those disruptions will mean for Iowa's communities and business organizations as they recover from the pandemic. The panel discussion held on Zoom and also streamed on Facebook Live featured Suresh Gunaskaran, CEO, University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, Mary Sparks Thompson, CEO, Clive Behavioral Health, Dr. Tom Evans, President and CEO, Iowa Healthcare Collaborative, and Dr. David Williams, Chief Clinical Officer, Unity Point Health. Through all the disruptions, Iowa's healthcare system demonstrated resilience and the ability to be nimble as rapidly emerging situations required fast responses, the four health leaders said. Weaknesses in the system were laid bare, however. Disparities in care and the negative consequences of social determinants of health for people of color across the state are of great concern for health professionals. The pandemic has spotlighted these disparities and is driving efforts by health systems to enlist more support from within the communities, particularly to engage more people of color to seek and gain access to care, the panelists said. Looking ahead, healthcare organizations in particular are going to have to continue to consider how they will manage the long-term effects of the stress of a pandemic that's stretching into a second year, the panelists said. They also grappled with ideas about the best use of telemedicine and other technologies, particularly in rural communities, and many of the logistical and staffing challenges encountered during the pandemic. Collaboration within and between communities across the state has been a strength in Iowa in addressing those challenges, the panel observed. Going forward, forming more partnerships will be an important part of improving access and availability of care, the panelists said. Among other issues discussed, will Iowa's healthcare system emerge operationally and financially stronger from the pandemic? What sort of lessons are healthcare leaders taking away from nearly a year working through a siege of infections? What types of actions do doctors and hospital administrators hope to see from Iowa business leaders that will help their employees and communities to maintain their health? If you would like to rewatch the event, you can go to www.businessrecord.com backslash video.
And now we move to the question and answer section with the panelists. Question, from your perspective, what is the biggest lesson Iowa's healthcare providers should take away from the coronavirus pandemic? Gunaskaran's answer, this has been really, really difficult and it has been really strained at the Iowa healthcare system, but the system did not break. Did we learn a lot? Did we see some weaknesses? Do we need to build some muscle strength in some areas? Absolutely. But let me tell you, the system didn't break. And the reason the ANTS system didn't break is because we've got great institutions, great healthcare workers, and great leadership across the board. I saw success in rural settings. I saw success in urban settings. I saw regions across the state working together. When one hospital was overwhelmed in a region, other hospitals picked up the slack. When we needed to move vaccine doses around, we're moving vaccine doses around. And so I would say that the state of healthcare is there are challenges and we have identified weaknesses. But my biggest impression is the collective strength that we do have in Iowa with our larger healthcare community. The answer from Thompson, I think one of the worries that we will all probably share somewhat from a mental health perspective is just the cumulative stress of folks working within the healthcare system. And I think we are challenged to develop some creative ways to respond to that so that our healthcare workers retain that resilience and continue to develop new ways of managing the stress and to celebrate the things that have gone well and to learn from the things that we've been challenged with. I've had many years in healthcare and all of it's been in behavioral health. To be a behavioral health representative on a panel like this tells us something as well. We are recognizing as a community that our mental health and our emotional health are foundational to success in all areas of life. The answer from Evans, I believe that we had a reached a bit of a stalemate. We've been trying to march toward transformation of the healthcare system for decades, and we kind of reached a point where everything was kind of static. The payers did this, the providers did this, the hospitals did this. The pandemic broke many of the current paradigms. Because of this challenges we had as a healthcare system, we had to find new ways to do things, and I think it gave us permission to do some things differently. And finally, William's answer, we're certainly nimble in our use of telehealth. Tom is right. That genie is out of the bottle. It's not going back. I think it's going to be great for our state. I think it's going to allow us to bring much more specialty care to our commu- to your communities, which I think is terrific. We were nimble in our messaging. We're nimble in our vaccination process. It just keeps coming up again and again. So that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned during the pandemic. Question, what are some of the next steps in the battle against COVID? Answer from Gunaskaran, science is coming through in a big way. These vaccines work. Getting these vaccines to people, it's a chore, but we're up to the challenge and we're going to do a great job. What I would ask the business community to do is please encourage everybody you come in contact with to follow the science. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I want people to follow the science. I want people to believe in science and we're going to get through this. Evan's answer, it's not going to be over quickly. We're going to be dealing with the ramifications of this for, I believe, a couple of years. There are new variants coming out. We're dealing with vaccine supplies, much like we have to deal with an annual flu shot. There's questions whether or not we'll have to have some kind of a regular vehicle for COVID going forward. And so my guess, my point is, it isn't going to just be over. And so don't expect to go back to the way it was. This is a new business paradigm and that we have to figure out how to operate with. And Thompson's answer, we need to be looking at how our healthcare overall is delivered. There are folks with chronic conditions who may not have been able to receive the treatment they normally would. So I think chronic illnesses may continue to pose a challenge for management going forward. I think on the behavioral health side, we certainly have seen some of our care for patients disrupted or perhaps delayed just during that time. 
when we were pivoting and trying to reach out to folks. We've had some people also self-select to not receive the normal health care that they would. So I think we will have a kind of a catch-up period where we're trying to get folks reactivated with their primary care and their preventative care. Question, how are social determinants of health affecting access to care during the pandemic? New figures out in February showed that Americans overall have lost a year of life expectancy because of COVID, but people of color have been much more affected. The answer from Gunaskaran, I think this is one another aspect of, quote, the genie is out of the bottle, end quote. One of the things that the pandemic has done is it not only forced us to do some things differently, but it has illuminated the glaring deficiencies we already have in many aspects of our healthcare system. You heard Mary give a pretty articulate description about our challenges in behavioral health and our behavioral health, mental health infrastructure, and our state is woeful. It needs to be addressed, and something like the pandemic only amplifies how screwed up it is. We have another issue that we need to begin to address in this state is our maternal child capability, our ability to provide obstetrical services and deliveries across the state that has been on a downward trend for over 20 years, and it's reaching, in my opinion, a crisis point similar to our behavioral infrastructure. The answer from Williams, taking off on what Tom said, I don't think it should surprise any of us that those who are dying at the most rapid rates from COVID because of socioeconomic issues are not only not able to seek care, they're also not trusting in healthcare. And I think it's going to take us in, uh, as an industry a great deal of intentional effort to build up that trust in many of those communities. I know our diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders are planning and working with people in all of our communities of different ethnicities, different races, different backgrounds, so we can get the message out. It's really easy for Caucasian Dave Williams to sit here and say, quote, trust the science, end quote. We need to hear from people in all of our different communities and all of our different backgrounds to work together to reach out to those vulnerable populations. That's what we're planning to do. I'm sure that's what every health system in the state is doing. And the another answer from Gunaskaran, in healthcare, there is a lot based on technology, and that technology has very differential access. And so whether it is innovation around telemedicine, whether it is innovation around primary care, the insurance coverage, these were the people that were left out through those coverage gaps in the first place. On the Governor's Economic Recovery Board, we talked a lot about the disparities between rural and urban areas and access to broadband. We talked about the differences in childcare, the school supplemental programs and communities that serve those from more challenged socioeconomic backgrounds. What I would say is, to establish trust, it takes affirmative intent that we actually are trying to take this head on. And I am stealing Dave's idea, but it's going to require us to construct direct programs where these communities can be served by people they trust. And what we're looking at is developing outreach programs so that healthcare institutions can partner with trusted institutions, whether they're institutions of faith, community centers, or other social services. I know this is something that Dr. Evans also has some background on, but I would just simply comment that we can't solve a problem that we don't want to commit to solving. I think that this is a clarion call that when you see this kind of impact on a community, it's not just a priority. I think this should be our highest priority. Question, from an education standpoint, part of affirmative act intent means having representation of all different kinds of people in the healthcare field so that people can seek care from those who look like them and have similar identities. What kind of actions would be needed to get more people of color to pursue a career in healthcare? 
answer from Gunaskarin. I think that University of Iowa Healthcare has a pretty strong track record of doing this, but there is certainly room for improvement. In every single one of our healthcare training programs, there are recruitment efforts targeted specifically at appealing to these populations to get healthcare training, and it starts with academic mentoring. It includes targeted recruitment efforts. It includes dedicated financial support. And now what we're doing is partnering upstream, what we call down to high school and middle school type of programs to get folks involved in STEM programs. But to be honest, it is only the tip of the iceberg because unfortunately, there are so many educational demands on us that when you prioritize how many of your resources can go into these kinds of efforts, we unfortunately don't devote as many as we would like. And so the existence of programs across all of our education areas, all of that is underway. We've been doing a reckoning on it over the last year under the leadership of Dr. Brooks Jackson, looking at how do we take this to another level. We have some new ideas. We will be doing some new outreach. We also think that here a little bit of what we learned during the pandemic is more important than what the university can do. It's what the university can do in collaboration with other partners. These other partners know these communities, know these high potential students, know these concerned citizens better than we do. I think we have somewhat worn out what we can do solo, and I think that we need some new energy around this collaboration. Answer from Evans. Around the context of this discussion that started on social determinants of health and disparities, the fact of the matter is this is a cost shift for the businesses of our state. If we do not address this, these people still have medical problems, still come into the emergency room, still generate charges that end up getting passed to the entire system. So how we deal with our society and meet the needs that need to be met is a critical measure for of us. I'm going to go back to the point that the pandemic is not just a challenge to us, it's an opportunity. It breaks our paradigm, and it gives us a chance to think about things differently and figure out how we go forward now to address some of these things. Question, what kind of messaging should medical providers be making to the public about the efficacy of vaccines to ensure acceptance? Is it the responsibility of state and local governments, or should medical providers take a more active role? Answer from Williams. It is the job of medical professionals to get out and preach to the masses. It's the job of communities as well. It's the job of all of us. I think the one approach that isn't going to work is to get take a stick and beat people over the head and say, quote, get a vaccine. Why aren't you getting a vaccine? You're silly if you don't get a vaccine, end quote. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of appropriate fear. What we need to do is just educate, educate, educate. We've got to get that factual message out there through social media, through interactions face-to-face, through leaders like yourselves that can get information to your employees. When you look at Unity Point, we're trying all different types of communication strategies to get our message out. University of Iowa, Mercy are doing the same thing. We all need to work together. We have over 30,000 team members throughout Unity Point Health, and I just looked at our dashboard this morning, and our current vaccination rate is 86.6%. That succeeded my wildest dreams. I would have been thrilled three months ago if you told me 75% of our people got the vaccine. So education works, dispelling rumors works. Thompson's answer, one of the things that I learned from a doctor I worked with years ago, before we really seen the impact of Google searches on office visits for physicians, the thinking at the time was trying to kind of maybe shape the patient's behavior away from utilizing the internet for researching medical issues. But this physician I worked with said, quote, you know, what I do is rather than it challenge the activity or that behavior, I say, here are the resources that I'm going to suggest for you. So if you're going to do an online search, use this resource, end quote. 
one of the things I think is really important is to listen and understand different person's perspectives because we all see things through our kind of a viewpoint or vantage point or our cultural values that oftentimes we're not really fully aware of. Question, what sort of effects has the pandemic had on healthcare systems, finances, and what's the outlook? Evan's answer, we have a healthcare system fed predominantly on a fee-for-service system, and we've been moving it toward a value-based system. And the good news is we were moving in that direction, but the bad news is we were still dependent upon a fee-for-service system where it's unit charges, which means you've got to have someone sitting in a seat in the doctor's office to be able to generate a charge. All of a sudden, we get hit with a pandemic where people couldn't go to the doctor's office or we could not do surgeries, and there was a dramatic hit to the financial stability of the health systems. What the pandemic did is illuminate how dependent we are on that particular economic model. We've got to have surge capacity built in so that we can still have healthcare systems when we have events like this. William's answer. In the short term, yes, I think costs will go up. I'm worried mightly about people who have delayed care. Remember, the definition of minor surgery is, quote, surgery that's not done on me, end quote. There are things that are being called elective, like tumor debulking. There are things that are not really elective and need to get done. The long-term answer, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, this is not sustainable. Healthcare costs cannot continue to go up because we can't afford it. When you look at the socioeconomic truths, as a country, we're getting older, we're getting sicker, and we ran out of money. We've got to come up with ways to actually do what Tom said and actually transform our healthcare system to be able to be sustainable and thrive in a value-based environment where instead of me getting paid for doing as many tests on you, as many procedures as I can, and doing them in a really expensive hospital, maybe I should get paid for taking care of a panel of patients and doing a great job keeping them out of the hospital and managing their diabetes and managing their COPID. Thompson's answer, I think one of the interesting things about this pandemic, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but really revenues it went down and expenses went up. So some of the procedures or services that health care organizations stay financially on solid ground were disrupted. And then at the same time, we had a lot of costs in terms of our supply costs. The cost of staffing the hospital increased. Other things, even simple things like cafeteria sales were down. So in other words, you don't have families in the hospitals to visit and even simple things like that can add up. So I think the pandemic really is requiring, again, that resiliency and nimbleness around how we operate hospitals as a whole and then as a larger healthcare system. Question. Although most of our audience is based here in the metro, obviously what's happening in rural healthcare still affects what's going on here. What's the status of rural healthcare? Thompson's answer. It's something I think about a lot because we talk in the Des Moines metropolitan area about the lack of especially behavioral health resources, and it's just compounded, obviously, in our more rural communities. So it's something that is really front of our minds for us. One of the interesting things that occurred with a pandemic is that in Mercy One Des Moines Child Adolescent Pediatric Clinic, the pivot was pretty quick to telehealth resources. The kids loved being on telehealth, and that was kind of neat to see that engagement but the experience for the clinicians was very interesting and in that not only was the care accessible, but we also got to see that child in that family in their home environment. And they learned so much about a family's functioning, about a family's challenges, about the things that are going really well in a family just by being in their home environment. I think we'll see more innovations in the space going forward because we've seen the value of that. And quite frankly, I think our clients and patients are going to demand that type of availability and that ease of access from us. Williams, 
telehealth was critical during COVID. It's going to be critical as we address rural health. As Mary just said, we used telehealth. We beefed it up in the inpatient setting dramatically. So we had telehospitals taking care of our patients on the floor. We had teleintensivists taking care of patients in the ICU. Just imagine you're in the midst of COVID and you have two ICU docs in your town and one or both of them come down with COVID. That's a real life example. And the only way we were able to continue to care for patients in that community was telehealth. So I think it was very important in our, in our hospital setting. Like Mary said, it's very important for all of our communities as we sit here in Iowa on a zero degree day. And I love Iowa, but I'm telling you, gang, sometimes when I try to recruit subspecialists, they don't want to live where it's zero degrees. And if I can expand my pulmonologist, my neurologist, my infectious disease physicians through telemedicine and expand that workforce and let them virtually travel all over communities so you can have a quality, safe care as close as home as you can, that's the wave of the present and the wave of the future. So it's critically important. COVID only made it more important. Evan's answer, I think it's important for people to realize that we're still learning how to do telehealth. Everybody has a screen, but we haven't had the infrastructure or the need to really do telehealth, let alone a pavement methodology to create sustainability. It's good for Iowa. It increases access to specialty services in rural Iowa. I think the critical piece around telehealth is there's still a debate about how to pay for it. I think we're still describing what it is. If I'm a payer, I'm concerned that the providers are just going to start popping out telehealth visits like they're cookies. And the fact is, it's more than that, folks. We need to be figuring out how we effectively use this to improve the quality and safety of care. And the answer from Gudaskaran. For me, rural Iowa is not a small Iowa. It's a large part of Iowa, so we have a lot of writing on it solving this problem in the most innovative ways. I think affordable broadband is going to be a huge part of it. And our learning during COVID, even going out to some critical access hospitals and to some of their patients, we had video failures over technology. And now we're learning more about how we can do that better. But let's not forget that this all rides on an infrastructure. The second thing I would say is our entire healthcare workforce in this state, for the most part, has a choice whether to practice in the state, to work in the state, or to work in some other state. I think more and more we need to think through how we create an integrated healthcare system that not only works for Iowa, but also works for the healthcare community that we're trying to attract and retain in Iowa. That's going to be a very important question because these transformations, I think, have just as much ability if we don't embrace them to make us unattractive to the healthcare workforce. And our last question, what are some practical things that you as healthcare professionals would really love to see the business community embrace in terms of helping ourselves to have a better health system or maybe better health overall? Thompson's answer, the things that are front of mind for me is encouraging your employees to be engaged in their healthcare, whatever that healthcare need would be, and what resources can be provided in the workplace to support folks. The other challenge that I see is what's the role of business leaders or leadership in general as it relates to health and for their employees. I think there's many simple things that can be done. A simple check-in, what have you done to take care of yourself in the last few days? Just giving permission for people to express how they're doing, trying to anticipate when folks are struggling with their, with either their physical or mental health, and being ready to respond in a supportive way to help that person receive the care that's required. I think especially in the healthcare environment, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how we support those workers who, from a behavioral health perspective, may have really experienced a trauma in terms of the number of deaths that they may be seeing if they're really on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. 
the fear that they have for their own health and the health of their families and how folks are managing and responding to those concerns. Williams answer, I work with brilliant docs and nurses every day. So does Suresh. So do Tom and Mary. Healthcare accounts for probably anywhere between 5% and 15% of the health of yourselves and your employees. The rest of it is the socioeconomic factors. I would argue that the business leaders on this call have a lot more to do with the health of their employees and the team members than we do as healthcare professionals. It's social determinants of health. It's the behavioral factors Mary talked about. It's a living wage. It is adequate time off. It's all the things you can con- you control that I don't control that really affects the health of your staff. And our last answer comes from Evans. No one understands that Iowa's health is related to their businesses' costs better than the employers. I think that we have a new appreciation of how we need to deliver medical care differently than it's been done in the past. And I think it's going to take the combined intellect of both the healthcare community and the employer community to come together and figure out solutions that will be best for Iowa as we go forward. We've got opportunities to adapt. I think we need to figure out how to do how we do this together. Our next article, Healthcare and Wellness, Clive Behavioral Health Opens with Limited Intel Capacity. Outpatient visits won't begin until inpatient units established by Joe Gerdgesen. Central Iowans seek inpatient or outpatient behavioral health care for themselves or a family member now have another option with the opening of Clive Behavioral Health. The new 83,000-square-foot hospital, which officially opened February 22nd, is a joint partnership of Mercy One and Universal Health Services. UHS, a large publicly traded health services company that operates hospitals and standalone clinics nationwide, will oversee the day-to-day operations and management of the new behavioral health facility. Located at 1450 Northwest 114th Street in Clive, across from the Mercy One Rehabilitation Hospital, the -the state-of-the-art facility will serve both children and adults in separate units of the hospital. The hospital's one-story clinic and clinical and support services area includes a cafeteria and gymnasium for patients, a three-story unit house inpatient wings, and outpatient services. Mercy One's existing 34 psychiatric beds at Mercy One at Des Moines Medical Center will continue to serve adults and seniors and are now being operated as part of the Mercy One UHS Joint Partnership. As a newly launched hospital, Clive Behavioral Health must open with a limited number of inpatient behavioral health beds available, 10, until a certification process has been completed by the Joint Commission, including a no-notice inspection of the facility. It anticipated that the process could take two to three months, potentially longer, before additional beds can be opened up. Overall, every feature of the building is geared toward providing a safe and nurturing environment for patients, said Clive Behavioral Health's Chief Executive Mary Sparks Thompson. Quote, the design and construction is specially geared towards the need of behavioral health patients, Thompson said. The colors, the furnishings are all specially designed for use in a behavioral health setting, and we try to create a warm environment as best as we can with the colors and the art that we have installed so that it's just a place of rest and recovery. End quote. The gymnasium, outdoor courtyards for recreation, and a large dining room are each elements designed to let patients safely leave the unit setting for a change in atmosphere, Thompson said.
The hospital is currently staffed with about 60 employees, including three psychiatrists who have been hired, along with a complement of direct care workers, therapists, nurses, social workers, dietary staff, and housekeeping. Quote, we had a lot of interest in the facility from those direct care staff, she said, and I feel very optimistic now as we ramp up that we can continue that pace. I think that what we're finding is applicants are seeking us out. They are excited about a unique standalone behavioral health facility, end quote. Outpatient services will follow once the inpatient units have gotten established, Thompson said. Quote, our first priority is to establish excellence in our inpatient services, so we will have a gradual ramping up as we develop all of our processes and systems and get our staff well-trained so that we're sure we've got the safest, best care, end quote, she said. Then, after that, we'll be looking at adding our outpatient services over time, end quote. The building has a separate outpatient entrance where children and adolescent outpatient services will be offered. Adult substance abuse behavioral health programming will be offered downtown at the Mercy One campus. Additional outpatient services under consideration for the future include electroconvulsive therapy and possibly transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy and ketamine treatments. Quote, so we'll be looking at all the different interventional psychiatric applications in the outpatient setting for the future, Thompson said. And so as we get our hospital built up and add capacity and start bringing on our outpatient services, and we'll probably pause to take a look at the market to see what services are most in demand in the community, and then we try to build services around that, end quote. About the joint venture, Clive Behavioral Health LLC is a joint venture between Mercy One Des Moines and Universal Health Services, a Fortune 500 healthcare company that describes itself as the largest operator of standalone behavioral health hospitals in the United States. In 2020, UHS was recognized as one of the world's most admired companies by Fortune magazine, which in 2017 listed the company in its inaugural ranking of America's top 500 public companies. UHS has 90,000 employees and through its subsidiaries operates 26 acute care hospitals, 328 behavioral health facilities, 42 outpatient facilities, and ambulatory care access points an insurance offering, a physician network, and various related services located in 37 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. The new Clive Hospital building is owned by a wholly owned subsidiary of Universal Health Realty Income Trust, which is leasing it the joint venture. The 20-year lease with Clive Behavioral Health has five 10-year renewal options, according to financial documents filed by the Real Estate Investment Trust. Clive Behavioral Health has produced a virtual tour video of the new facility, and more information can be found on its website at clivebehavioral.com. Our next article, CEO has held leadership roles with Child Serve Ireley Ball. It is spelled E-Y-E-R-L-Y Ball. As CEO of Clive Behavioral Health, Mary Sparks Thompson oversees the behavioral health operations for the new Clive facility as well as for the Mercy One at Des Moines, two existing behavioral health units with 32 beds at his main hospital campus in Des Moines. Thompson received a bachelor's degree in nursing from Luther College in Decorah and earned a master's in social work from the University of Iowa before joining Mercy One at Des Moines in February 2016 as a service line director for behavioral health services. She was director of care quality and safety for child serve in Johnston. She has also held executive roles with the Horizon Health Corp, a Texas-based health care services group, as well as Des Moines-based Yearly Ball Community Mental Health Services. 
quote, my background and my education is clinical, but I have 22 years of leadership roles at different levels and a lot of experience on the operational side of making an organization such as this work, end quote, Thompson said in a 2019 interview. As joint ventures partners, Mercy One and UHS, quote, are both very nicely aligned in waiting to provide quality care, wanting to provide quality care, dignity, and respect to the patients that we are serving, end quote. Our next article, Know Your Worth, Fearless Stories at Work by Principal, Fearless, Bringing Her Full Self to Work, Munira Karadun. Munira Karadun strives to bring her full self to the workplace as a Muslim woman that includes wearing the hijab, an outward symbol of her faith, one commonly stereotyped. But if there's one thing Munira doesn't do, it's back down from her identity. She started wearing the hijab three or four years ago to deepen her faith. Despite misgivings, it would reduce her effectiveness at work. Shortly after, Munira, CEO of Principal Asset Management Barad, one of Southeast Asia's largest asset management companies, attended a global management conference full of executives. She looked across the auditorium and quickly noticed she was the only one wearing the hijab and one of the few Asians in the room. But Munira's presence made a mark. She received positive feedback from her peers, a truly vindicating and validating moment. Quote, to me, that was truly liberating, Munira says. It was a liberating because you have to see people for what they are, because what I am shouldn't be based on what other people want me to look like, end quote. Munira has always been fearless, even as a young girl in Malaysia, raised by a disciplined corporate financier mother and an idealistic dreamer father, she showed those tendencies. With the guidance of her father, a serial business owner who taught her to, quote, always get up and finish the rice, end quote, Munira's ambitions shined. She attended Newcastle University in England and stayed in the United Kingdom, where she met her future husband and earned a job at Petronas, then a portfolio manager position at Rothschild in London. In a corporate world where she wasn't the smartest or the most socially privileged, her discipline and never-back-down attitude led to a quick success. By 28, Munira was part of an award-winning team in emerging global markets. Then, her father called, employing her to come home. His health wasn't well. Munira picked up her life and moved back to Malaysia, taking a job with principal to lead institutional business. He died shortly after, and Munira submerged herself in the work of running an office and a family. The focus paid off. At 38, she became CEO of Principal, crediting her husband, children, and mother with keeping her grounded and balanced. Quote, you can catch up on career. Family sacrifices you can't catch up on, end quote, Munira says. Munira's journey made her positive reception at the Global Management Conference all the more rewarding. Munira was unbashedly herself, an executive, a mother, a Muslim, and a trailblazer, and always has been. She hopes to inspire others to live out their true selves as well. Quote, the point I wanted to make was you always need to, to believe in whatever you believe in, end quote, Munira says. Quote, that's my quest, end quote. Okay, it says, Business Record Iowa, in partnership with Iowa Association of Business and Industry, ABI, Taking Care of Business Conference, A View from the Top, Invest in Your Business by Attending ABI Conference, by Stephen M. Bradford, ABI Chair, HNI Corporation Muscatine. Over the past several years, ABI's annual convention has grown and taken on more importance. Now known as Iowa's Taking Care of Business Conference, the annual convention is Iowa's premier general business conference. Attendees experience nationally known speakers, see terrific Iowa venues, and receive information to address current issues and help them lead their companies to greater growth and prosperity. Time and again, 
ABI members tell us what they value most about the conference is the opportunity to connect with fellow Iowa business leaders and to do business with each other that is perhaps doubly so this year as the last year's event had to be canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. People are eager to attend the important event in a safe manner. The planning committee is putting together an outstanding agenda with engaging speakers, forums, and events. All possible safety protocols will be in place with plenty of room for appropriate social distancing, masks, and sanitization. I'm confident you will feel safe and your time at the conference will be very rewarding. There is no better investment in your business than attending ABI's 118th annual meeting, the Taking Care of Business Conference. We are excited that this year the conference will be held in Coralville, Iowa City on June 8th through the 10th. The Coralville, Iowa City area is featured in this month's business record, Iowa. Local community leaders are excited to see ABI come to town and are rolling out the red carpet. Please consider this your personal invitation to join us. I look forward to seeing you there. Capital Business, ABI Workforce Priorities Advance at Iowa State House by J.D. Davis, Vice President, Public Policy, ABI. The Iowa legislator is narrowing the list of policy bills that may be considered for final approval during the 2021 legislative session. The second legislative funnel comes on Friday, April 2nd. By that date, all policy bills must have been voted out of the one chamber and a committee in the opposite chamber to receive a further consideration from the legislator. Two key initiatives developed during the ABI public policy process, which begins in August of each year, are advancing. Introduced as SF-492 and HSB-203, the legislation addresses Iowa's Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, UNUITF. The bills ensure that the trust fund remains solvent, provides a temporary replacement income for those unemployed through no fault of their own, and does not require employers to fund benefits not paid by businesses in other jurisdictions through tax levies solely on Iowa business. SF361 and its house companion are also on the move. The legislation updates Iowa's private sector drug testing policy. Current Iowa law provides that employers may maintain drug-free workplaces and allow for the testing of employees and prospective employees to ensure that employee drug use does not threaten the safety of workplaces. Strangely, under current law, if an employee alleges in a court proceeding that the employer did not follow the drug testing law properly, it is upon the employer to prove their innocence. The legislation returns the burden of proof back to the party making the allegations to prove their case. In addition to the two issues above, the ABI public policy team is also helping craft legislation that helps provide child care alternatives for our employees, make sure affordable workforce housing is available, and ensures high-speed internet is available throughout Iowa to help businesses and families educate their kids, improve access to health care through telehealth, and work from anywhere within our borders. As a benefit to our members, the ABI policy staff holds Zoom briefings every other Friday, updating the progress of these important initiatives. You can sign up by visiting the ABI events webpage at www.iowaabi.org backslash events. As always, if you have individual questions of the policy staff, they may be directed to the email address listed in the byline. Thank you to all who participate in the ABI public policy development process. Cultivating Iowa's Talent Continuum, hear it from Iowa students how your leadership impacts our current and future workforce from Mackenzie Kielman, Marketing and Engagement Coordinator, ABI Foundation. 
when asking for support of Iowa leaders in providing leadership programs for students, we're appreciative of the overwhelming response we receive from leaders in a variety of occupations and industries. And we, in return, we would like to share the impact of the business community. These are quotes from students about their perspectives of themselves in our state's businesses after attending our five-day programs. Quote, I now see how Iowans care and support each other through business, end quote. Quote, it's really motivating to know that people I've never even met are rooting for me and invested in my future, end quote. Quote, it gives me comfort that we're not only in our, on our own, businesses do want to help us succeed, end quote. Quote, our leaders helped me recognize my strengths and how I can contribute to a business, end quote. It doesn't take a certain job title or location to be involved. Currently, a way anyone can help is to spread the word about the programs within your sphere of influence. Consider the students you are connected to through family, friends, colleagues, and the organizations you're involved in. You can nominate students to participate through each program's prospective website, Business Horizons for High School Students, www.businesshorizonsiowa.com, and Leadership Iowa University for College Students, www.leadershipiowauniversity.com. We also encourage supporters to provide the program's information to your network through email, newsletters, or social media. It is often encouragement like yours that allows your reach to expand to new leaders and new communities. Your support of the ABI Foundation's program makes a difference in the lives of Iowans as a nonprofit providing statewide educational leadership opportunities. Thank you for the leadership you provide in our state. And our last article, Marketing Influential versus Influencer, by Drew McLean. Over the past few years, the rise of influencer marketing has changed the landscape of endorsement or testimonial advertising. 20-plus years ago, celebrities endorsed products and services, but it was usually in a TV spot or print ad, and we immediately understood that they were being paid for that endorsement. Today, YouTube or Instagram, quote, celebrities, end quote, weave their endorsements into their lifestyle photos, and even if they mark their video or post with one of the approved hashtags, things get a little murky. Many influencers make millions in exchange for conspicuously using their supporters' products. There are a few challenges with today's version of influencer marketing. It's out of the price range of most brands. If you want the endorsement of one of the top performing influencers, you're looking at a seven-figure budget. There's a liability in the association. Most of these influencers are young and they have access to a ridiculous amount of money. The combination often leads to very bad and very public mistakes that often splash upon their sponsors. Most professional influencers endorse many products and services, so you'll never be their sole focus. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be thinking about influencer marketing for your company, product, or service. You just need to broaden your viewpoint. Somewhere along the way, many marketers forgot the objective of working with an influencer. It's not just about getting Instagram or YouTube celebrities to post about them. The real goal is to influence an audience to increase their interest in your brand and ideally become a customer. That is what smart marketers hope to accomplish. Given that goal, let's think about who potential customers would trust enough to make a purchase based on their recommendations. Most of us are more likely to listen to someone who we know or trust family, friends, co-workers, or other people in our world. This is word-of-mouth marketing at its finest, but word-of-mouth is just another form of influence marketing. We are easily influenced by those we know in real life. Beyond that, we trust people whom we have deemed an expert because they consistently produce information that we find valuable. Think of your favorite YouTube amateur chef or an author whose nonfiction book became your guide and who still creates content you enjoy. As we listen to the podcast or read the books produced by these subject matter experts, 
we come to know and trust them. They weave bits of their life story into their content, and pretty soon we know if they have any kids or love Hershey Kisses. They feel very familiar to us. One of the other reasons we trust them is that they don't make their income by being internet famous. They're experts at their craft, and as part of their own marketing, they've built an audience that appreciates their expertise. And it's audiences like that where you can flex your influence marketing muscle. There are experts out there who have built an audience that directly aligns with your marketing goals. These experts are influential, but they aren't influencers in the current definition of the word. There are some significant advantages to spending your influencer dollars with these subject matter experts who often fly under the radar because they don't aspire to wear the influencer label. In next week's column, we'll explore some ways you can ferret out these micro-influencers who have already gathered the exact audience you hope to connect with and have already built a trusted relationship with. We'll explore how you can partner with them to benefit your brand, their audience, and even influencers themselves. And that does it for today's reading of the business record on Iris for Friday, March 12th. I'm your reader, Erin. You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.